Well, good morning, everyone. If you would like to follow the reading in your own Bible or in the church Bible, the details are on the screen behind me. John chapter 19, and we are beginning in the second part of verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, (coughs) Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. 
not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been led, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they led Jesus there. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to this reading from Holy Scripture. Thanks very much, Hilton, if you keep that open, and let's pray as we come to look at it together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for some time now just to slow down in the business of life and to reflect again on exactly what happened at the cross. We pray, Lord, this morning that as we do, we wouldn't just learn things about Jesus, but that we would learn to love you more with all of our hearts, our soul, our strength, and our mind. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want you to think about what would be a normal day for you, a normal day at the office. For the, for the teenagers, maybe it's the, it's the mad dash for school in the morning. You get up late, you throw your clothes on, you're still eating your toast as you walk out the door to catch the bus. A day of school, you get back home, have a little nibble, do a bit of homework, watch some TV, or go to youth group, and it's a normal day at the office. Or maybe for the London commuters, it's the, it's the early train, the six whatever it is from Haddenham Town Parkway, and you, you get to the madness of the underground and in your office all day, you maybe sneak out for 10 minutes to grab a sandwich and you're back inside, you deal with the underground on the way home, you get back late, bite to eat, and you're out to home group or central prayers. It is a normal day at the office. And of course, that normal day will be different for us all. But I want you to think about what that normal day, what it would look like for you. And now I want you to read with me these words that begin in the second half of verse 16, because this was a normal day for these Roman soldiers. Second half of verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. What we have here in John chapter 19 is a normal working day for these soldiers. This is their bread and butter. This is their nine till five. They could not care less who they put into death that day. They are simply doing their job. They are following orders. And when they picked up their list of duties on that Friday morning, there were three names on their to-die list, which was their to-do list that day. And one of those names was Jesus of Nazareth. 
So you see, for these Roman soldiers, this was just a normal day. But of course, in reality, we know it's anything but, right? This is the most pivotal day, pivotal hour, pivotal moment in all of human history as God's own son is crucified on a cross. This is the day when God dropped a saving rock into the pool of this world and the ripples are still going out. So please don't be like the soldiers this Easter and treat this like a normal day at the office because it is anything but normal. This is the very reason why God left heaven in the person of his son and walked in this world in order to go to the cross for us. And over the last few weeks, we've been moving steadily, haven't we, towards this hour. We've seen the glorious one betrayed by Judas in the garden. We've seen the glorious one denied by Peter in the high priest courtyard. And we've seen the glorious one condemned last week at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And we finish with these words in verse 16. Finally, after all the pressure of the Jewish leaders, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so as we pick up the story today in the second half of verse 16, the soldiers take charge of Jesus as he's forced to carry his own cross outside the city walls to this little hill called the Skull in Aramaic known as Golgotha. And there, on that little hill, in the most public of places, they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And it's why this morning the title for our talk is the glorious one, defeated, question mark. Because at first glance, that's what it looks like, isn't it? Jesus is hanging on a cross between two criminals. It looks like the defeat of God's king. But of course, if you've been with us over previous weeks and the lead up to today, you'll know this is anything but defeat. This moment is actually the the fulfillment of God's saving work for mankind. What we are witnessing here this morning is not the defeat of God's king, but in fact, his great victory over sin and death for our sake. And so as we try and summarize what's going on here in John chapter 19, it's all about the threes. Three languages, three fulfillments, and finally three reactions by people to what they witnessed at the cross. And we're going to start with the three languages Three languages that declare that Jesus is indeed king. Have a look at verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Interesting, isn't it, that John gives over one verse here to describe the crucifixion of Jesus, yet he takes four verses to talk about a little sign pinned above Jesus' head. Why? 
Why the disproportionate number of verses given to a sign and one verse given over to the crucifixion itself? It's because John's main aim here isn't to talk about the physical sufferings of Jesus as excruciating as that would have been. John's purpose here is to help us understand exactly who it is, the identity of the person that is hanging on that middle cross, because that's what's so staggering here, right? That the person in the middle is God's own son, his perfect king, as we read in verse 19. This is the king of the Jews. And as you go on to read in verse 20, you can see that the sign was written in three languages, Aramaic, which was the language of the common folk, Latin, which was the language of Rome, and Greek, which was the language of trade and commerce. What's the point? Well, I think the point is actually quite simple. The sign is there to be seen by all, to be read by all, to be understood by all, and to be accepted by all, because the Lord Jesus came as king to die for all. He was born as the king of the Jews, but he will return as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In Revelation chapter 19, John, the author of this gospel, has a vision of the Lord Jesus returning in all his glory on a white horse. And we read in verse 16 of Revelation chapter 19, on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, the apparently defeated king of John chapter 19 is in fact the glorious, risen, ascended, triumphant king of Revelation chapter 19, the one before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the universal king. And we've got three languages that declare the fact. Secondly, three fulfillments that prove Jesus is king. Have a look at verse 23 and 24 where we find our first fulfillment. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. It's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 18, that you can see there on the screen where King David is, is conveying his sense of, of abandonment. He's painting the picture of an execution scene in which people are sharing out the clothes of a condemned man, and it is a scene that is fulfilled in the life and death of King Jesus. You see that, that isolation that David experienced when he was being hounded by Saul and at other points in his life is just the smallest taste, just a taste of the isolation and the sheer desolation that Jesus experienced at the cross when he was abandoned by his own father. It's no surprise that Jesus quotes other words from Psalm 22 as he's hanging there on the cross. Psalm 22 was firmly in the mind of the Lord Jesus. And most notably, those words found in verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? But as we read on in Psalm 22, it doesn't just speak of isolation and desolation. It speaks of vindication. It speaks of victory. Death, you see, will not be the end for King Jesus. Isolation and desolation, yes. But as we read on in the gospel narrative, it will end in vindication for God's perfect king. Fulfillment number two comes in verse 36 and 37. We're going to read from verse 31. Now it's the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. You see, the breaking of legs was done to speed up death. Because a crucified person would have borne a lot of the weight through their legs. And when the legs were broken, that weight was transferred to their arms. Which in turn would have had a crushing effect on the lungs and sped up death by asphyxiation. And the Jewish leaders wanted these guys dead. They wanted them off the crosses because Sabbath was approaching. And they didn't want to desecrate their so-called holy day. The uh, soldiers obliged, look, verse 32. They came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Down to verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The fact that Jesus' bones were not broken and the fact that his body was pierced were two clear fulfillments of scripture. The first one is a fulfillment of Exodus 12, verse 46. It's the night of the Passover, and we read of the the Passover lamb that was killed, that was slain in order to avert the judgment of God. And so we read, it's the Passover lamb, must be eaten inside the house, take none of the meat outside the house, do not break any of the bones. And as we've been seeing all the way through John's narrative, John wants us to help us see Jesus as the lamb who was slain as a fulfillment of the Jewish Passover, the life that was given in order to avert the wrath of God and rescue those that trusted in God's provision for them. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember it last week with Pilate? Three times he declared Jesus to be innocent. The innocent Lamb. The Lamb without blemish. The fulfillment of the Jewish Passover. But not only were Jesus' bones not broken, but his body was also pierced, fulfillment number three. Now, probably the first reference that springs to your mind when you think of being pierced is Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He wasn't pierced for his own transgressions. He was pierced for ours. But actually, if you see in the little footnote there in your Bibles, Jesus is actually speaking a reference to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where we read this. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. 
and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Zechariah anticipates the day when all of God's people will weep and mourn as they look upon the one whom they have pierced. And a couple of verses later in 13, verse 1, we read this, on that day, on that day, when God's king is pierced, when God's king dies, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and their impurity. You see, the piercing, the death of God's king will result in a fountain of forgiveness, a covering a cleansing which will reach every nation and every land, a refreshment and a cleansing and a purification from sin that will come to every person that puts their trust in the one who was pierced on their behalf. Here we have the promised king dying, the promised king of Psalm 22, the Passover lamb of Exodus 12, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and the promised king of Zechariah chapter 12. Three clear fulfillments of Scripture. Now, for the eagle-eyed among you, you've probably noticed that there's a fourth fulfillment in there, in verse 28 through to verse 30, which we've glossed over entirely. And the reason is we're going to be looking at that on Good Friday, a whole service given over to, to that fourth fulfillment and those precious words of Jesus as we think about his finished and his completed work at the cross. So come back on Friday uh, for that fourth fulfillment and the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Firstly then, three languages that declare Jesus to be king. Secondly, three fulfillments that prove Jesus to be the promised king. And lastly, three reactions to the fact that Jesus died as king. Have a look again at verse 23. And 24, where we find the soldiers indifferent to the death of Jesus. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here we have a picture of of worldly men preoccupied with worldly things. As God's king dies on a cross in front of them, they're playing games. They're rolling a dice to see who gets the clothes of Jesus. Oblivious to and indifferent to the magnitude of what is happening before their very eyes. And 2,000 years on, In middle-class Britain, it's not much different, is it? This Easter, people in our community will be busy going about their business, busy working, busy playing, busy tidying their houses, busy doing DIY, busy doing whatever they're doing, but totally indifferent to the saving work of the Lord Jesus. I wonder this morning, is there something of that indifference in your heart? Just a little bit of indifference, of of familiarity to what was happening at the cross? 
If so, could I challenge you to not look on from afar this morning and acknowledge what you think you already know of the cross? Could I encourage you to draw closer to the cross of Calvary this morning and to spend longer there understanding again what King Jesus went through for you that we might appreciate more fully what was happening at the cross? Or maybe it's an indifference you see in people around you family members or friends who seem indifferent totally to all that the Lord Jesus has done, and it saddens you, saddens me. If so, this Easter, could I encourage you like never before to pray for them, to pray that God would smash that indifference And by his grace, do whatever you can, humanly speaking, to lift their eyes off off a normal working day, the normal routines, the normal practices of life, in order they might look upon the one who suffered on that cross in order to save them. Firstly, we're confronted with the indifference of these soldiers. Secondly, we see the loyalty of these ladies towards Jesus. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And so John intentionally contrasts for us four soldiers, notice four indifferent soldiers, with four loyal ladies who were stood at the foot of the cross. And for each of these ladies, it must have been both a great joy following Jesus and a great pain, staying with Jesus to the very end. Do you remember those words of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, spoken to Mary? This child, speaking of Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And how, at the foot of the cross, Mary must have felt the full force of that sword as she watched her own son die. And so... Jesus, she looked up at her son, and he looked down at his mother. But do you notice what he called her in verse 26? Did you see that? Did it make you think, why? When Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he, he loved standing there by, he said to her, woman, Why? Why in this moment of all moments does Jesus not say, mother, but he says, woman. Now, this is far from a polished answer, but maybe it has something to do with the fact that he didn't want Mary to primarily see him as her son in that moment. He wanted her to see her as his savior because Jesus was firstly Mary's savior before he was her son. He came to die for her like he came to die for us. Mary, too, needed to receive atonement for her sin. Mary, too, needed that that cleansing and that refreshment that came from the fountain of forgiveness when the Lord Jesus was pierced for her as he was pierced for me and for you. Mary needed a savior 
and we need a saviour too this morning. We have the indifference of the soldiers, we have the loyalty of the ladies, and lastly, we have the bravery of Joseph and Nicodemus. Have a look at verse 38 and 39. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Now, until this point in the narrative, the Jewish leaders have had pretty bad press, and rightly so. They got Jesus killed. But here, after the Lord Jesus dies, we have two Jewish leaders, two members of the ruling Jewish council who make a public stand for Jesus, which forces us to ask the question, doesn't it, where were they when Jesus was handed over? Where were they that day when Pilate condemned the Lord Jesus? Did their, their secret following of Jesus as it was then, did that prevent Joseph from turning up to work that day? Did he throw a sickie because he knew what was happening and it was the easy way out? Or did he stand there as people said, crucify, crucify, and he stood there silently by the side? We don't know. We don't know whether he was there. And if he was, we don't know what he was doing. But this we do know. Joseph of Arimathea was changed. And he was changed by what happened at the cross. You see, you cannot be a secret disciple of Jesus forever. Either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. And thankfully for Joseph, it was the latter. His discipleship, his understanding of Christ destroyed his secrecy and he went public with his allegiance to the Lord Jesus. You maybe remember earlier the same thing in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, the inquisitive Nicodemus visited Jesus in the night, didn't he? For fear of being seen. He's no longer creeping around in the night. He's taken the body of his saviour off the cross in broad daylight to put it in the tomb. I wonder this morning, is there something of a secret discipleship maybe in our hearts still? just a little bit of a hiding away from our allegiance to Christ? If there is, what will it look like for you in the week and the months ahead to be that little bit more public in your faith in Jesus? Because we cannot be a secret disciple forever. Either our secrecy will destroy our discipleship or our discipleship will destroy our secrecy and we will be all in for Christ until the day he calls us home. Jesus is the universal king, three languages. Jesus is the promised king, three fulfillments. The question for you this morning, and it's the question for us all in all of life, how will we react to the reality and to the fact that King Jesus died on that cross?